We're going to look at one verse of Scripture today, Hebrews 11, verse 7, in the midst of this hall of fame of faith, as it is often called here in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, where uh, the writer of Hebrews is putting forth a number of examples of people who have endured through difficult circumstances, various circumstances where their faith is called into question or challenged, and he's writing to these people who are really struggling. The, the, the audience, these Hebrews to whom the writer is uh, addressing this letter, uh, want to give up. They're, they're on the verge, they've had enough, they're tired, they're weary and well-doing, and uh, they're looking for a, an easier path, and the writer is encouraging them to, stick, to, to, uh, to keep their faith. And he has described faith, and he has given us a couple of examples in, uh, in uh, Abel and Enoch, and now he turns his attention to Noah. Of course, the story of Noah is one that we're probably all familiar with, but he says this, hear God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us today. I want us to do two things today. I want us to, first of all, appreciate Noah. And that's what the writer is, is desiring for us to do as he holds up Noah's example of faith to us. But more than that, I want us to look beyond Noah and look to Jesus Christ. And I'll explain more uh, of that in, in a moment. But uh, because we have a full schedule today, I want to jump right in and, and look at several things that the writer of Hebrews tells us uh, about Noah. And I've got here five facts, uh, if you will, uh, about Noah that are mentioned here in verse 7. And the first one is he received God's word. I'm sure that you've all heard the story of Noah, but in Genesis 6.13 we read there that God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. A few verses earlier he explains that uh, the, 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 the thoughts of man's hearts are evil continually. And so uh, God is grieved that he has made man. He says, Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark with gopher, with gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And he goes on in more detail about the dimensions of the ark and, and gathering the animals and putting them in the ark as well. Well-known story. So Noah, through a, a dream, some sort of divine revelation, a voice from heaven, who, we don't know exactly how he received this word from God, but he received these instructions, this warning from God, and he received it. He heard it and he listened to it. And second of all, it tells us that he obeyed out of reverent fear, it says. The word reverent fear here could be translated a number of different ways. Pious care, a reverent circumspection or, or care, watchful vigilance. Uh, he was careful to hear and take on board what God told him and then follow uh, closely the instructions that God gave to him. He took God's warning of judgment seriously. He didn't blow it off, even though 
It was like nothing he'd ever heard or seen before, as it tells us. But it was because he believed God and he did not want to disappoint God or to uh, disobey God. He took God seriously. Reverent fear is that attitude that says, God is so great that I am afraid of displeasing him and so good that I'm afraid of losing him. It's a good policy for us to have, that sort of reverent fear, to think God is so great that I am afraid of displeasing him. Because he is, as we will read in chapter 12, a consuming fire. And as we will think about today, he will bring judgment upon sinners. But he's also so good that I'm afraid of losing him. I want to be in fellowship with him and close to him. That's that reverence that is somewhat uh, filial uh, uh, in the sense of having him as a father, a loving father, and wanting to please that father. So Noah has given these instructions that in reverent fear he obeys, and it's no small task that he's called to because as we uh, understand from the dimensions given us there in Genesis, the ark was somewhere around 450, 500 feet long and 75 feet wide. And if you put that in terms that most of us understand, especially this time of year, as we were anticipating football season, uh, a football field from, if you measured it from the back of each end zone to to the other uh, end zone, that's 360 feet. So give another 100 feet and you'll have the length of the arc. And 75 feet is the width of a football field, and that's the size that Noah's ark was, somewhere in that neighborhood. So quite a large boat for someone that didn't have power tools and uh, all kinds of different uh, mechanisms for making it happen and lots of manpower. And then you can appreciate as well not only just building this thing, but gathering up the animals, as was instructed, two by two. Uh, the book of Genesis tells us that his, that, uh, his family and the animals entered, entered the ark. That's how it's expressed. And so we have these pictures, you know, the paintings that you have, uh, you see sometimes where the ark is there. It's all built and, and up, uh, up ready to go. And, and the, the animals are all in single file, you know, two by two, just taking their place in the ark. Now, I don't know if that's the way that it happened, but... If it happened that way, then those animals back in Noah's day are a lot different than the animals today. Because you just don't coax an an animal onto a boat uh, by telling it to get in line, like you might do a class of fourth graders, like my wife does on a daily basis. But anyway, uh, it was probably have been uh, a very large task, as you could well imagine. Probably much more difficult than just getting the animals to file in to the boat. But anyway, Genesis tells us that Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. He did it. He respected God and his words of instruction. And so in doing, thirdly, it says that he saved his family. Uh, Noah, his wife, and their sons and, their daughter, and, and his daughters-in-law, eight of them all entered the ark and they were saved. And Jesus mentions Noah. He believed in Noah and what had happened there, and he says, Before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it was only these eight that were saved. Even though Noah was a preacher 
You know, he was a herald of righteousness. Second Peter uh, chapter two verse five tells us. I mean, he was building this ark, and uh, surely people were asking him why. And he was gathering these animals, and surely people were uh, curious about why he would be gathering all these animals. And Noah would have had many opportunities to share that this flood was coming. God's bringing judgment on the world because of its wickedness. But people just continued on doing their thing, ignoring, ignoring, ignoring God's warning through Noah. Noah's family, on the other hand, was saved because Noah heeded the warnings of God. And in so doing, it tells us, fourthly, that he condemned the world. Noah's righteous obedience to God showed by contrast how sinful the world was to reject it. Noah's message was rejected. God's moral standards were rejected. But Noah was righteous. He was faithful to God. He heard God's warning and he acted accordingly, according to what God had told him to do. And as I said before, he was also telling other people about it. And it was possibly, if you, depending on how you interpret Genesis 6-3, he could have been doing this for about 120 years. Even so, you know it took a long time for him to build that ark that's 450 feet long and 75 feet wide. Years, decades, who knows how long exactly that it took for Noah to construct this ark and gather up all the animals, there would have been many opportunities for him to show by his actions and by his words uh, what was coming and to warn the people. So he condemns the world because the world ignored him. And by contrast, he had a, a great example of faith. And then fifthly, finally, Noah inherited, it tells us, he became an heir of the righteousness that is by faith. You notice there the word heir. An heir, of course, as we all know, receives an inheritance that he did not produce. You know, all the land, all the property, all the bank accounts, the money uh, that an heir receives, it, it wasn't money that he made, it wasn't property that he bought or houses that he built necessarily, but usually an heir receives something that the, the father, the parents had built. The, the money that they had worked for and left over. So here, Noah, even though he uh, is an example of faith, that faith was given to him. He inherited it. He was an heir of righteousness by faith. His own righteousness was not what saved him. The Lord saved him. And that becomes very clear when you read carefully the account of Genesis Yes, Noah was obedient to the word that he was given, but ultimately it was the Lord that saved Noah and his family, and we see that in Genesis 7:16. The writer of Genesis, uh, Moses, is summing it all up, uh, everything that Noah did, and he says there, and, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, talking about Noah's family and all the animals, they went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut them in. The Lord is the one that shut the boat. Otherwise, the boat wouldn't float. I don't know if the door was so big that Noah couldn't close it himself, but anyway, however it was constructed, the Lord made sure that they were shut in and safe. It was the Lord that closed the door 
of the ark so that these people could be saved. So ultimately, God is the one that saved him. Now, Noah trusted the Lord to save him. He heard God's word. He trusted that word. He acted accordingly, and God was faithful, and he saved Noah and his family. So Noah is an admirable example of faith from which we can and should draw inspiration. But we must put this passage in its broader context. We can look at Noah and we can look at Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Abel and Enoch and all the others listed in Hebrews 11, but we need to remember that Hebrews 11 is, is all the verses and the chapters were not there when this was written. Those were added later to help us reference it and, and be able to understand and find things. When it was written, it was just a letter with one big argument that it's making. So if you look down at the end of chapter 11, verse 39, it's beginning to sum up all these examples. All these, and all these, he's talking about Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, etc., that he's just talked about. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And then chapter 12, which is a continuation of this argument. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we need to look beyond Noah and Moses and all the other great examples and look to Christ. We can appreciate Noah and his faith, it's for certain, he's a great example to us, but we love Jesus because of what he's done for us. We love Jesus because Noah actually points us to Jesus. If you have the outline you see there, I've, I've made it parallel to the first part. As we look at Christ, Christ himself, in a sense, received God's word. Not like Noah did, but Jesus told us in John chapter 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So you see there, Jesus is on a mission, and he describes it as the will of the Father, a, 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 miss, a mission that he has been assigned something that he is given to do, and he carries it out faithfully. He does the will of his Father. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus is facing the, 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 uh, the pinnacle of, of his mission, the cross, and he asks his Father, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup, the cup of your wrath that I'm about to drink, pass from me. Yet he says, not my will, but your will be done. It's not that... Jesus didn't want to do necessarily what, what God the Father had given him to do. It's just that he was faced with the weight of it and he submits to that 
will, to that mission that he has been given. He renews that mission in his heart and mind and he faces the cross. So he has this mission. He received instructions, in a sense, and he goes to earth and carries them out for us. He obeyed out of reverent fear. Now, Jesus always obeyed perfectly. He was, he was the one who was perfectly righteousness, so he would always have reverent fear. He always uh, had a perfect relationship and a perfectly appropriate relationship within the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We don't have time to go into that now, but certainly he would have had the proper attitude, the proper uh, understanding and emotions towards his heavenly Father always. Every thought, word, and deed, and intention of his heart was only perfect all the time, completely and totally. So he obeyed out of reverent fear, and in doing so, he saved his family. And who is his family? But those who would put their trust in him. As he said, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, all that the Father has given me. So he has come to, to pay the penalty for his people's sins, his family's sins, his children's sins. As John, 1 John 3 says, Behold what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. We are his family and he has saved us through his perfect obedience. And then fourthly, he condemns the world. See, the first time he came into the world, he didn't come to judge the world. Remember John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But then the second verse, the verse after it, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So that was his mission the first time around, was to, to be able to save the world. Back to that Matthew 24 passage that talks, that, where Jesus mentions Noah. He's talking about his return because the second time he comes, he's going to come as a judge. And just like Noah received the warning that there's coming judgment in the flood, we receive the warning that Christ is going to return again to judge the world. He says in Matthew 25, concerning that day and hour, that day when the Lord will return, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. One will be taken. One will be taken to judgment. One will be taken into to Christ's kingdom. That's the separation that's going to come when Christ returns. So we must stay awake. But know this, he goes on to say, to say that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. First Thessalonians 1.10, Paul describes the people to whom he is writing as those who wait for his Son from heaven, 
whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. In, in the original language, it, it's, it's Jesus who delivers us from the coming wrath, which is not really different than wrath to come, but I just like the coming wrath better because it's very, I think it gives a better description of it. It's coming wrath. Not that it's just coming, will have come, and then it's over. But for those who are under God's wrath, it never stops coming. It comes for eternity. It's wrath that will never be abated. That's what hell is. Hell is God's wrath being poured out upon sinners. It's coming, coming, keeps coming, never stops coming. Jesus is going to bring that the next time he comes. But, fifthly, whereas Noah became an heir of the righteousness that is by faith, Jesus provides righteousness by faith. Jesus is the ark that we need to get into in order to be saved. He is the salvation from that coming wrath. He is the one who will deliver us from our sins, who has delivered us from our sins by faith in his finished work on the cross, which we will celebrate here at the table to today. We must be in him, connected to him, married to him, in order to be saved from the coming wrath. We must turn away from sin and put our trust in him, not in our own works, not in our own do deeds. We can't be good as any of these people in Hebrews 11. We can't be as good as Noah, but yet Noah, Noah still needed a Savior as great as he was. And you and I need a Savior as well. And that's been provided. And that's what, you know, just like Noah said, look, there's an ark here, plenty of room. Come and get on board and be saved from the judgment. And what we're saying here today is Christ has come. Get on board with Christ and you'll be saved from the coming wrath. It's the only way of salvation. And we wait for him to come not to pour out wrath, but to save us for eternity. And like Noah, see, we can go back to Noah now and think about our faith. Do we, do we believe that warning? Do we believe in the coming wrath? Do we take God's word seriously? How will we respond? Will we, will we repent and turn to him and, and be saved? Or will we perish like all the people who went about Marrying and giving in marriage until the day when the Son of Man returns. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to heed your warnings and believe them. Give us faith to believe them and to be watchful and vigilant, trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Lord, we pray that you would convict us of our sinfulness and our sloth our apathy, uh, our rebellion against you, our desire for the things of this world and to live for the here and now. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have an eternal perspective on things. Most of all, Lord, we pray that we would run to Jesus Christ for salvation, that we would not just look for fire insurance from the future coming wrath, but Lord, that we would come and know you our Heavenly Father who is great and who is good. And Lord, may we know this type of relationship with Christ that is one of delight and joy 
in the Holy Ghost. And we pray this in his name. Amen.